Welcome to another episode of Author Conversations presented by Arcadia Publishing and the History Press. I'm Jonathan Foster, and today I'm speaking with the author of Vermont's Ebenezer Allen, Glenn Fay. Ebenezer Allen was born during political instability and hardships in an unknown frontier. He matured during the tipping point of the American Revolution as an invincible leader who personified patriotism. Unlike his better-known cousins, Ebenezer was a skilled commando and combat veteran in Warner's Regiment and Herrick's Rangers. Following the capture of a British rear guard force in 1777, Captain Allen took a leave of his regiment and wrote an emancipation statement for a captured enslaved woman and her child. The document, which he filed with the Bennington town clerk, read, It is not right in the sight of God to keep slaves. Join historian and Vermont native Glenn Fay as he recounts how Colonel Allen became the forefather and elected legislator of two towns and one of the most prominent men in Vermont. Glenn, thanks for joining me. Nice to be on. Thank you, Johnny. Yeah, of course. Now, you are uniquely qualified to speak about Ebenezer Allen because you've lived among basically his home site where he lived. Uh can you right. tell us about yeah. that? Yeah, well, um, of course, everything changes over time, but uh, this place is still pretty rural. And he founded three towns. The The last one was on, a, on an island in the middle of Lake Champlain. Um, and it's uh, he got his pick as a, uh, as a militia member in a colonial soldier they deeded all of the lots uh to those guys who fought in the revolution so he took the uh the southernmost tip of the island he had 64 acres or so and uh, it is an absolutely spectacular spot because you've got um plenty of sun uh you're on the lake good water um you've got beautiful adirondack mountain views of New York on the on the right over the lake and uh, and Vermont Green Mountains on your left on the east side um, looking over the lake as well so in a place was completely uh, uninhabited and full of wildlife and uh, you know it was, it was a real choice place to be and he was actually deeded land in other towns as well but this is the one he he chose yeah, and if you've never been to that area, um, it's it's incredible. The Fort Ticonderoga area, Lake Champlain, just yeah. yeah, even upstate New York, Vermont, New Hampshire, that whole area right there is one of the most beautiful pieces of land, I, I think, in our country. Uh, if I'm going to yeah. be honest about it, it's one of my favorite places I've ever visited. But I really felt when I was reading the book and reading about you talking about the sites and you imagining the home site kind of a kinship with you because different yeah. historic places I've worked at or volunteered at I tried to imagine what it would look like based on the data we have and the historical um, resources we have to know what it would have been like um, so I totally got where you were coming from when you you know just those couple sentences talking about that and it let me know mm-hmm. that okay this is someone who tries to get that whole picture when he's trying to talk yeah. about history. Yeah. So I yeah. really, you know, I, I appreciate, I appreciated that part. And when we talk about Ebenezer himself, so when it comes, you know, to his life on the frontier, 
he almost seems to be what we would say maybe a renaissance man or a jack of all trades for this life. Yeah. Because he can speak yeah. multiple languages. He can farm, hunt, and he even has a bit of blacksmith training. He was a very yeah. driven individual, wasn't he? Yeah, he was. Uh, this guy is, I think a lot of them were, you know, when you start unraveling the hardships of, of that time, and it's almost cliche, right? Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I had to walk to school when I was a kid, uphill, both ways, that sort of thing. But but these guys are really, you know, they were really hard men, and they were, you know, up against the elements, uh, extremes in temperature, um, and they had, uh, you know, the, they had the British Army leading raids, um, burning towns, um, you know, all, all kinds of um, disease um, that, you know, we take for granted today, smallpox and, and tuberculosis and, and stuff were just wiping out. So he, for example, had eight kids, only six of them survived, and that was about average, um, you know, for people. And, and if, you had to, if you needed wood sod, you had to go to a sawmill, and the next sawmill might be 60 miles up the lake. Yeah. And so you're dragging, you've got oxen hauling a sled in the winter over ice, or you're, you don't know what the weather's going to be. So you can literally freeze to death in a few hours if a bad storm came in. Uh, so those kind of things we don't even think about today, um, you know, that's what they're putting up with. Yeah, these sleds aren't small. In fact, we'll probably circle back around to a sled in just a little bit. And when I was reading your description of Ebenezer, who, of course, is our main subject and the main subject of your book, but then you compare him in temperament temperament and in spiritual belief to Ethan Allen, it reminded me, even though they're cousins, of Ebenezer maybe being the father who warns his kid about that one uncle who's coming over. And maybe you should ignore some of the things and the language he uses, but he means yeah. well. And that seems like yeah. that's maybe Ethan Allen. That's maybe the comparison between the two. Yeah, yeah, it's true. And I'm not sure, um, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to know exactly how much religion um, Ebenezer had by the time, you know, the war ended. I mean, he, he was a tithing man which means he was a guy who made sure if anybody's on the road on Sunday, they got detained or, or they sent to church, basically, you know, back in the earlier days. But um, I don't think he was one of these guys who enjoyed going to church and listening to the sermon every Sunday. But he, you know, when he emancipated the slaves, he said, and he wrote down, it's not right in the sight of God to own slaves, you know, so this guy was really kind of a, a pretty strong conviction for, you know, what's right and wrong and those basic fundamental beliefs that come with, with, you know, early Protestant religion, which is what, you know, where he was coming from. Mm. Yeah, he, and he has that, that's all, you know, part of New England, and you really do a good job at the beginning of the book setting up that a lot of these settlers are moving in from that area of Massachusetts, New England, and then also yeah. you do a great job of saying, but 
there's kind of almost as many war brewing with New York too in the area over exactly. who owns yeah. this land. Yeah. Can you tell us a little yeah. bit or go into that a little bit? Cause that's almost a precursor to the revolutionary war. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to bore you, but I mean, this is really, this is not something I understood well until I started doing the research. And, and basically what was going on is this New York had a governor, a British governor, Mm-hmm. Uh, New Hampshire had a British governor. Both of them were full of themselves, and they both were trying. <laughs> they were both selling, both selling land right to anybody who would pay the money for it. And so you can see right away this isn't going to go well uh, for very long because New York would come in and say, "Well, you don't have a New York patent or deed, so you have to buy our deed." or we're going to run you off your property. This is after you built your cabin and whatever in the woods. And the, you know, and the New Hampshire governor just defied them and kept selling New Hampshire deeds for cheap. Uh, the New York governor kind of believed in a manor system where you had these, you know, landlords of large thousand acres, you know, estates and they would lease land to little guys, farmers who would want to come in. So you had two completely different systems and that's where the green mountain boys started their militia in bennington is to you know to kind of stand up to these sheriffs who are coming into new york so they were buying land from new hampshire they wanted the new hampshire deeds to be you know to stay in force so they could flip the land they could make money on it as land speculators and Ebenezer was one of those guys, you know, he's one of those Green Mountain boys. And and that was part of, you know, their way to survive in a time when the economy was really crappy. Yeah. And, you know, they didn't have much else, you know, going for them. They didn't have currency. Um, the British were the ones who had the, the sterling, the money. Um, so it was a difficult uh, situation. Yeah, I mean, New York, you have... It basically, even though both governors real sketchy in the way they're going about this, yeah. But then you have to look at okay, well, do I want basically to live in a serfdom when it comes to New York, yeah. or, you know, or sharecropper, yeah. what we might call it in the eighteen hundreds? If you want to yeah. look back closer to history that way to understand it, or do I want to be able to say, hey, I have my own land, and that's what it really comes down to. So, which devil do you choose to go with? Yeah. It's just that, you know, and it's sad because that was kind of going to, you know, the way you brought up about not knowing too much of it until you looked into it, it goes into the next point that I wanted to talk about because even when I was a kid, in our history books, when we learn about the Green Mountain Boys, Green Mountain Men, we had a blip in our history books. And it was even, it was just about the Battle of Fort Ticonderoga. And from elementary school to high school, even in college in American history, you, of course, had that image of Ethan Allen surprising Captain Delaplace in his night clothes, and that's it. You didn't know Benedict yeah. Arnold was with him, and that they had that whole argument about who's going to lead. Um, yeah. You didn't know... I mean, I had to do research on my own in high school because I really got into the American Revolution around that time, that oh, those cool. guns were yeah. put on sleds, like you talked about in wintertime, and dragged drug down by Henry Knox to Boston. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there's so much history uh, and so much more to this group of men. But their beginnings, 
still kind of you know a history that a lot of people don't know. Can you tell us about um, how they came about? Well, what's you brought up Ticonderoga, and the significant thing about Fort Ticonderoga is that it was the first time American patriots attacked the British. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it was the first battle. Now, they stood up to them in Lexington and Concord and Bunker Hill, but this was an attack on the King's cannons, on the King's stone fort. Um, and then, so that, you know, they really took offense to that. Uh, Britain did. Uh, th- this really riled them up. And, you know, what led up to this is, you know, remember all everybody was British subjects in the 1750s and 60s, and everything's going along fine, and the king decides to impose a Stamp Act, meaning a tax on every document. So you want to buy land, that involves a deed, boom, you got to pay tax. If you want to buy a horse, you know, same deal, unless you're going to barter it, you're going to be paying, paying tax on every every single document, you know, marriage document, uh, you know, and so forth. So the colonists said, this is kind of sketchy. We're not going to do this. We're, we came here to, to form our own colonies, okay? So over time, they revolted with the Boston Tea Party where they dumped loads of uh, commercial tea off ships in the harbor. Uh, Britain retaliated. Uh, there was a Boston massacre for, you know, where a few people got shot in a riot. Um, shot by British troops. And then there was Lexington and Concord and, and uh, Bunker Hill, which is really Breed's Hill, Thank where you, you had an actual this. bloodshed. Yeah. So these all, you know, word is filtering up into Vermont and New Hampshire, what would become Vermont and New York. And people are really starting to take sides. And they're, and they're taking, the British are taking away gunpowder. And they're taking away guns. And they're, you know... And people are like, wait a minute, how are we going to defend ourselves? So you get this kind of progression to the point where you've got this secret mission. Nobody knows what it's about except Ethan Allen and Benedict Arnold, who happens to be getting orders from the Massachusetts governor. So that, you know, really was a, that's what Ethan Allen is remembered for. And that's about it, because after that, Mm. he was... He was foolish, and he got captured and spent three years in prison during the the revolution. You know, Meanwhile, a lot Ebenezer, of people don't know, don't know that either, that he was captured. Yeah, yeah. And the meanwhile, Ebenezer is having a bang-up time. He's like a monster on the battlefield. I mean, this guy is, he's he's like that kid you knew, you know, on the, on the football or the soccer field who was fearless. And, you know, he really inspired people. And he really got some things done. <laughs> yeah, he really did. So and you he, cover that really well yeah. in the book, too. Especially, you know, when it comes to after General John Burgoyne. British, he's a British general. Yeah. And he comes on the yeah. scene. I know a lot of people know him from the Battle of Saratoga. But and I interviewed an author last year on the podcast who wrote a book about his terror, too. And... He has a manifest. Um, can you tell us just a little bit about what he does? Yeah, so so what Burgoyne does, and this is Gentleman Johnny Burgoyne, who's a 
oddly enough, he's he's really into drama and music, and he's formally educated and everything. Well, he turns into a real kind of totalitarian. He's the commander of the Northern British Army, so he's based in Albany until that got too hot, and and they moved up in Canada and so forth. So he puts up this manifest, which is a poster all over, you know, the Vermont, saying basically, you know, unless you're ready to pledge allegiance and give your food that you're growing and your cattle and so forth um, up for sale to the British Army, um, we're going to burn your house down and we're going to kidnap you and you're going to do servitude, um, you know, up in up in Canada. Um, which is exactly what they started doing, and they actually did it for, you know, five or six years when when things were really out of control. And uh, so that, of course, that accelerated the anti-British sentiment, and particularly when they started coming in and, and burning villages down. And um, and you had loyalists who were loyal to the king, loyal to Burgoyne, who were living in the village next door. And supposedly being mild-mannered, uh, you know, countrymen, but they were kind of informing the British, mm-hmm. telling them where the where all the good stuff was, and turning into, you know, uh, soldiers at night during the raids um, and stuff. So you had a reaction from the Green Mountain Boys against against the loyalists who were living amongst us, you know, in the towns. So pretty complicated stuff, and we think we're in a polarized environment today. I mean, this was pretty; it, it was pretty awful. Yeah, you know, when you read about it, there's a lot of con- like you can see a lot of similarities between South Carolina and your home state, where you know South Carolina, mm-hmm. where my family's from, your home state, because literal civil war, families fighting families, yeah, over yeah. their loyalties. I mean, you can walk in downtown Charleston. And you have the home of a lieutenant, royal lieutenant governor, a block away. Uh, you have the Rebecca Mott house where um, she lived, and they they were a, a patriotic family. That's that yeah. close. So that gives you yeah. an idea of you know, just you know between our two states how it was, and it's that way in other states too. But it was a civil war, especially in places yeah. like Vermont in the back country of South Carolina. Yeah, you're right. And a lot of, you know, big uh, respected historians um, think it was a civil war, not a revolution. And, of course, the British called it a, a rebellion, um, but, it, but it really was. It had all the elements of, of civil war. And yeah. it was brutal, too. The things, people who yeah. were close to each other beforehand, the thing, uh, yeah. we won't go into some of the things that were done. But the things that they would do to each other, you just wouldn't yeah. think they would be. They were neighbors who had lived in harmony before this yeah. war uh, yeah. took place. But there were raids Absolutely. that were done during this time period, too. And also, the interesting thing about Ebenezer Allen that I learned about in the book is this, of course, will lead to forts being built. He will be a commander of a fort, and he even designs forts, um, it looks yeah. like, in the book. So that's interesting to me that he was able to do that yeah it's um it's fascinating to me and you can drive by these these granite markers and kind of imagine these 
you know, I have a couple pictures in the book of, of these of sketches of, of these, and some of them were two miles square, these picket mm-hmm. forts with 16-inch diameter logs sticking 25 feet up in the air with points on them and, you know, oak, double oak doors for these forts. And they had a whole city living in there, um, you know, as protection. And they were pretty impenetrable. They had garrisons. They had, you know, they had uh, a little army living in some of these um, places. And they were the only safe place for a few years because you couldn't go north of there. It was just, you know, there was just too much activity um, for protection. Just, an, again, a Renaissance man, an amazing individual who doesn't get the credit he deserves, but as you point out, doesn't really seek the limelight either. Um, just an incredible guy. Yeah. Incredible yeah. man. So he's going to keep, as we pointed out, he's going to keep, or you pointed out earlier, rather, rolling in the accolades. Um, he's going to be at the Battle of Bennington. He's going to uh, be at several different battles, actually. So can, the Battle of Bennington, though, is really interesting to me. It's one I feel like we don't really talk about a lot in American history. Can you tell us what role he's going to play in that battle? Yeah, so first of all, there's you know, there, it's a small battle compared to Yorktown or something like that, but it's it's basically the battle for all uh, between General Burgoyne, the British general, and, um, and, and a guy named John Stark, General John Stark from the New Hampshire militia. And Stark gets together as many Massachusetts, Maine, Vermont, uh, soldiers as militia and colonial army soldiers as he can, which is about 2,000. And uh, Burgoyne's got a couple thousand close to it. And mostly Hessian soldiers, which are German mercenaries. He's got hundreds of Native Americans that are fighting for them and a few British soldiers and a bunch of loyalists, hundreds of loyalists. And so these two armies meet outside of Bennington in a little town um, called Walloomsick, New York, about five, six miles outside of Bennington, trying to uh, protect the, the stores at Bennington, which was kind of the place where they stockpiled, you know, military supplies and food and so forth. Because the British Army is, you know, they're starving. They need food. They need, you know, backup. So, so this uh, battle is fought in the afternoon on a sweltering hot August 16th, which is coming up next week. And uh, these guys basically go at it. And uh, Stark, at one point, of course, the British have cannons, which you can load them up full of grape shot, and it's just a great anti-personnel weapon to, you know, shallow the battlefield with with grape shot, uh, lead, and so forth. And uh, Stark orders Ebenezer Allen uh, to take his a bunch of sharpshooters, get close enough to the cannon where they can take out the artillery gunners, and which uh, which Allen does. And Allen actually, as they're running for these uh, this rock outcropping to kind of take cover behind, 
he gets grazed by uh, his face gets grazed by a grape shot. And his response is, "Them fellows shoot as careless as the devil," and he keeps running. <laughs> and of course, what they do is they they line up their shots, they fire at the same time, and three or four gunners drop at the same time. And um, I don't think they had to shoot too many more volleys before the the um, the Hessian gunners decided it was time to get the heck out of there. And they left the cannons, turned and ran, and Allen's men went and captured the cannons and turned them on uh, on the troops, um, on the British troops. So it was that kind of, you know, battlefield Teflon that this guy had. He seemed to, you know, not be afraid uh, of anything, and he was pretty skilled on the battlefield. Yes, absolutely, and it reminds you of those stories of you know gunshot bullets going around George Washington, and he, he's just seemed to have almost this sense of a deity. You know, they say it is like God's watching after him or something. It almost seems that way with yeah. Ebenezer Allen when you're reading these stories yeah. about him. Um, so I feel like we would be remiss, and you touched on it earlier if we did not talk about his feelings on slavery. And there were those who were anti-slavery at the time, but he was a very prominent person speaking out against it. Um, can we, As we start to wind down a little bit, can we talk about that just a bit? Yeah, and, you know, this is a situation where uh, Burgoyne has surrendered at Saratoga, New York, basically his army of 6,000 or so, the whole British Northern Army. And they were, um, Fort Ticonderoga at that time was occupied by British. So those guys are moving out, headed for Canada because they want to get the heck out of there now that they've been defeated. And so uh, Allen's uh, commander tells him to, John Brown, um, tells him to round up his uh, his his group, his uh, his regiment and head up to Essex, New York, which is just north of, of Fort Ty. And it's probably, I think it's 40 miles from where they were stationed in Vermont and capture the rear guard, which included a hundred horses, three boats, uh, all kinds of provisions, uh, 50 soldiers. And when they all was said and done, they brought the wagons back and so forth to Paulette, Vermont, they discovered a couple of enslaved people. One was a woman named Dinah Mattis, and she had a two-month-old infant daughter named Nancy. And um, Alan talked with his men and said, this is you know, what I'm going to do, but I want to check with you, uh, make sure everybody is, is on board. I'm going to write an emancipation to free these people. There's, there's no... You know, it's not right to, to be keeping slaves. And that's what he did. And he wrote a statement uh, saying, you're free to pass anywhere. Take this with you and, um, you know, you're, you're free to go. And, um, and he copied it in the Bennington town clerk's office, which is where it is today. And nobody was surprised as the Bennington town clerk when I called her to find this in the land records. Um, this statement signed by Ebenezer Allen, um, dated November 27th, 1777, um, you know, emancipating these two 
these two slaves. So, um, you know, that was making a statement um, at the time. And as we look back on that, you know, as far as I know, he's, if not the first, one of the first uh, people to actually emancipate slaves. A guy named Abe Lincoln did it 100 years later, of course. But uh, so he's kind of a forward thinking uh, guy with with a lot of uh, kind of courage to take a stand, even though there were still slaves in Vermont. It was illegal technically because Vermont had just written a, a constitution. He actually served on the assembly and signed that constitution. Um, uh, not, you know, basically outlawing, outlawing slavery. So, so technically it was illegal, but it wasn't enforced because we didn't really have a police force or any way, any justice or law and order at that point. Almost a wild west kind of law on the frontier. Cause it's the yeah. frontier. It really is the frontier. Yeah. Um, at that point, you know, we jumped around and there's so much more. There's his life after the war, more to cover during the war, but we want people to buy the book. We don't want to give everything away. Right. Um, yeah. but you know, I want to know more, you know, maybe we can talk again at some point or you can write more books for us because I want to know more about your life. I want to know more about what you did, uh, when, cause you were a teacher, you were a professor, um, you actually got to do research, um, for the maritime, uh, study of the maritime war of 1812 in the Champlain Valley. I think that's really interesting. So it sounds like you've had quite the historic life to live. That you've yeah, enough to uh, know, you know, enough to know a thing or two. I'm not, uh, I'm not one of these uh, bestsellers yet, but I will be. <laughs> <laughs> it is fun. It's really interesting, and and what's interesting is I had I had researched the battles on Lake Champlain, like uh, the Battle of Balcour, um, with Benedict Arnold, and um, so I know my way around that, and he fits into the story here. Um, because at the time Benedict Arnold was doing that, Ebenezer was was running cover for him. Um, and they had the forts at Crown Point and Ticonderoga and uh, Mount Independence, which are all in the same neighborhood, played into that. The British couldn't get past them um, to go down to the Hudson and, and completely block, you know, sever the north from the south colonies and that would have been a strategy to win the war for the british yeah so there's so all of this connects you know the more you learn about it the more things start connecting and you say oh okay now i see absolutely oh, i mean benedict arnold was a really an american hero at this point in time too people yeah. you know people hear that they just think traitor no he was he, he was one of our top men one of our top uh, yeah. leaders at that point in time. I mean, yeah. he obviously had an ego too. You probably have to have a little bit of an ego to be a general and lead people yeah. in battle. Um, yeah. But he had that. And then, you know, Burgoyne, uh, you know, he's trying to come down, like you said, and lead. And, you know, sometimes I think about, you know, what would have happened if the British, you know, would have met up like they were supposed to and they wouldn't have gone to Philadelphia instead. Um so many what ifs, you know, and it's just like you said, all these connections into history is so so much fun to think about. Uh, and you you'll just sit there and you can think about it for hours, and time's gone before you think about it, or before you yeah. realize it. Yeah. Well, it's been so much fun talking with you, and uh, thanks for being on. 
Hey, thank you, Johnny, and um, it's uh, my pleasure, and uh, I'm, I'm glad to hear about your interest in history, and it's so important for us to keep history alive. Um, it is. It's, it's just, uh, you can learn so much from it, and it's so interesting, and we're all connected, you know, in this thing. Um, our ancestors were all connected somewhere, you know, and so it's really interesting to unravel that, and uh, I encourage people to do that. Thanks to you, the audience, for listening. Vermont's Ebenezer Allen is now available online at ArcadiaPublishing.com and wherever local books are sold. As always, I want to thank Jay and Bill's Unnamed Band Project for the show's theme song. You can find them online on Instagram and Facebook. If you have questions for me or show suggestions, you can reach out to me at ArcadiaAuthorConversations at gmail.com. That again is ArcadiaAuthorConversations at gmail.com. Thanks, and I will talk with you again soon. <laughs>